0: Amen. Um, there's a young lady that's been in the news a lot this past uh, couple weeks, Simone Biles, if, you, if you've been paying attention. Uh, that's Simone Biles as she's celebrating uh, accomplishing what no human being had ever accomplished before. And it's a move called a triple-double. And, um, and I've asked Shay Bauckham to come and demonstrate for us what that is. He's a big gymnastics guy. Um, it's, that's three uh, spins. Let me make sure, Shay. correct me if I'm getting this wrong. Three spins in the air while doing two flips, uh, and, and she, she accomplished that, landed it perfectly. And before she did that, everybody would have said it couldn't be done. And uh, her grace and strength is uh, unbelievable. It's really miraculous to watch. And as Simone Biles has been in the news a lot this week, you might have also heard that not only is she the greatest gymnast of all time, but she's also a victim of sexual abuse at the hands of the pedophile Dr. Larry Nasser. Larry Nasser was entrusted by United States Gymnastics and Michigan State University and others to uh, keep our gymnasts in top performance, and he used that opportunity to uh, abuse and to hurt young people. Dr. Nasser um, committed this unbelievable, atrocious act and, 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 and abusing the very young people he was entrusted to care for. Hundreds of young people, hundreds of our nation's best gymnasts were entrusted to this guy, and he abused them for years and years and years. And as Simone Biles was interviewed recently, she showed a kind of grace and truth that uh, that is equally stunning that she, that she shows on in the, in the ring. She said uh, to the United States uh, Gymnasts Association, she said, you had one job. She said, you literally had one job, and you couldn't protect us. And in that tiny 22-year-old athlete, we see the right response to that kind of injustice. We see the right response to abuse. We see wrath. What she demonstrated was wrath. And anyone that could turn a blind eye to the kind of abuse she suffered and say, oh, you know, I don't want to judge. I don't want to, you know, I want to say what he did was wrong. Any, I mean, we all know that what this man did was wrong and, and that it needs... To be judged as in brought out in the open and exposed for what it is and called out. And, and if we refuse to judge what Dr. Nasser did, we refuse to call it wrong. We're not being loving. We're not being caring. We're not being kind. We're being the opposite of those things. And don't judge has kind of become a favorite, misconstrued uh, verse in our culture where everybody wants to do whatever we want to do. We want to determine right and wrong for ourselves. Yet deep down we know that this kind of ungodliness, what, what happened Simone Biles and so many others, that kind of injustice, it has to be judged, it has to be exposed for what it is. Another person in the news a lot this week is Jeffrey Epstein, right? This billionaire who used his status and his wealth and his influence to uh, abuse and traffic who knows how many young people. And, And this last week, he died of an apparent suicide in his jail cell. And finally, liberals and conservatives had something to agree about, this frustration that this guy seemingly has evaded, justice or thwarted justice and we may not find out just how deep the sickness went and how far it went and even though we know there are situations where we know there are situations like epstein nasser we know there's these situations where evil has to be called what it is judgment has to be made sin has to be exposed exposed we tend to draw the line somewhere between me and jeffrey epstein right like where justice needs to happen, where judgment needs to happen, is somewhere out there. Like I'm pretty good, but like that Nasser guy, he really needs to. And, and we tend to draw the line somewhere out there between me and, and, and Nasser. Usually it's just a little bit farther than our own wickedness. And when we talk about wrath today, judgment today, some of us jump on that really quick. Yeah, judgment, Woo! yeah, it's about time all those people get what's coming to them. And some of us are so embarrassed by the idea of a God who has wrath. We're so embarrassed by the idea of judgment that we've lost any ability to call evil evil. We've lost any ability to call sin, sin. And whichever of those camps we fall in today, Paul says some really confrontational things to us today. He says things today that hopefully by the Spirit of God will convict us. And so the thing I'd like us to walk away from today with today is that God's judgment is good news. It's not a bad word. God's judgment is good news. It's not a bad word. Um, after Paul makes this incredible statement in Romans 1, 16 and 17, let's read it again. It was, this was the memory verse for last week. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If you haven't memorized it yet, you still have time. For it, is in the, for it is the righteousness of God, um, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. From faith for faith as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And then after that, Paul goes into the discussion for the next couple of chapters about, uh, about the wrath and judgment of God how God's righteousness plays out, all right? And he says in verse 18 that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So maybe circle those two words, ungodliness and unrighteousness. God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. And ungodliness is this idea of the stuff we do that's between us and God, the the sin that breaks our relationship with God. And unrighteousness could also be translated as injustice. It's that stuff, the ways we do wrong to our neighbor, And some Christians are really caught up in focusing on the sins between us and God. And others are really focused on addressing sins that manifest socially, as social evils. And the reality is, if we've had an encounter with Christ, if we understand the gospel, the gospel addresses both of those. The gospel addresses this vertical relationship, brokenness, ungodliness with with God, and it also addresses injustice with our fellow man. That's what the gospel does. And, And we're told that God's wrath is poured out against ungodliness and unrighteousness, or injustice of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So after, so this this next couple of verses are going to unpack Paul's words about how the gospel is God's raw power to save and deliver and transform, like we talked about last week, and how the gospel reveals the righteousness of God and how God has wrath towards ungodliness and unrighteousness. And we hear that wrath word again, maybe we cringe. Maybe we think, oh, man, I don't want to talk about that. Or maybe we perk up and say, yes, whichever way Paul's got something to say for us today. So the topic of judgment isn't necessarily a pleasant one, uh, but it's not just bad news. Judgment is good news for Simone Biles. God's judgment is good news for the victims of Dr. Larry Nassar. God's judgment is good news for the victims of Jeffrey Epstein. God's judgment is good news for the millions of people in our world today crying out for deliverance and rescue from broken systems. God's judgment was good news for the children of Israel when they were enslaved uh, in Egypt. Has he judged the idolatrous gods and rulers of Egypt and he rescued his people and set them free? His judgment was very good news. N.T. Wright puts it this way. God's wrath means precisely the determination not to give evil the last word. To root out from the good creation all that defaces and destroys it. God's wrath is about his determination not to abandon you to your sin. God's wrath it's his determination not to abandon this world to its sin. Sin and evil and darkness will not have the final word. God will dismantle and destroy everything that wants to dismantle and destroy you. And so we want to be on the right side of that event when that event happens. Okay, so if God has no judgment, he's not good, he's not loving. He's not kind. If someone was harming my child right in front of me and I said, well, hey, I don't want to judge that. I mean, to each his own. I wouldn't be a good parent, right? A good parent doesn't allow evil things right in front of them. Now, some things, things, sometimes things happen that are beyond our control. Yeah. But if I'm sitting there watching it and I don't intervene, wow, what's going on, right? And, and God intervenes in this world. He's, he doesn't just say, you know, evil things are happening to, to Will, but I mean, I'm not going to do anything about it. I, God's justice, his judgment, is his commitment that he is going to destroy everything that wants to destroy you. In his righteous judgment, we see the demonstration of his love, his goodness, and his justice. And so because God opposes evil, because he he opposes the evil that wants to destroy and deface you and me, we can have hope. So God's judgment is good news. It's not just a bad word. And so... um, Again, we see in Romans 1, 16 and 17 that the gospel is God's raw power to save and then it reveals God's righteousness. And we're going to talk more about that word righteousness next week. But kind of the dilemma that Paul's going to start addressing uh, is that how can, kind of the question Paul's ask, answering is people might say, well, how can God be a faithful judge and a faithful father and take this world to the good end that he's promised when his own people are part of the problem and just as messed up as everybody else. So you, you track with the, the, the dilemma here. God has promised to be faithful to his people and to set the world right. Well, how can God be fair and faithful to his people when his people are messed up? And, and, and this is a problem that it seems like maybe God's painting himself into a corner. And, and maybe it sounds, maybe it's a little bit like this. Imagine a judge takes office in a town and he is a committed father. He's committed to justice. And he's committed to taking this town to a good and upright place. And so uh, one of the things that starts happening is uh, the, uh, there's some teenagers in town that start defacing the town. And they start vandalizing everywhere. And the authorities promise and the judge promises, I'm going to bring about justice here. And the, the, the gang of teenagers is, is rounded up finally, and the ringleaders, it comes to, comes to be shown, are actually the children of the judge. And so the question becomes, how's the judge going to, what's he going to do? How's he going to be a, a merciful father and a righteous judge and be faithful to carry this town to where he's promised he's going to help us to go? And that's kind of like the dilemma that God finds himself or found himself in from human perspective. It's this dilemma of he's chosen to be in a special relationship with these people. He's also promised that he's going to take this world to to, to a good and righteous place. And yet his own people fall in and end up being just as messed up as everybody else. And Paul's answer that he's going to unpack throughout Romans is that God, the judge, God our Father, his answer to this problem is the cross of Jesus Christ. When we look to the cross, we see God's righteousness. That's his love and his wrath. When we look at the cross, we see how much God loves you. You want to know how much God loves you? Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how far God's willing to go. You want to see how much God hates sin? Look at the cross. That's what sin does. Sin, even mine your pet sins that couldn't hurt anybody they put Jesus on the cross so God hates sin and he loves you and we look at the cross we see his wrath and we see his goodness and we see his love and that's how he uh resolves this 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 dilemma is he does for us what we could not do for ourselves by living a life we should have lived but couldn't Dying a death we deserved and overcoming death. That's how he is faithful to us, faithful to this world, and ensures these caring creation towards this really, really good goal. So the gospel reveals God's righteousness. It reveals through the cross his wrath and his love. And Paul writes in the, the latter part of verse 18 there he says, That the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Interesting, look at that. Paul's describing you and me and all of fallen humanity. He doesn't say that we're ignorant of the truth. We like to play the ignorance card a lot. Well, if I just knew right and wrong, if I just knew more, I wouldn't have done this, this, or this. He doesn't say our problem is an ignorance problem. What about people that have never heard this? No, he says the problem is, it's not that we don't understand the truth. It's that we actively suppress the truth. It's like we're kids at a a swimming pool and there's a beach ball we're playing with, and we keep trying to push the beach ball under the water. you ever do that? And what happens, it keeps just trying to pop back up, and that's what we do with truth. We keep suppressing it, pushing it down, and yet it keeps working its way up to the surface. And the things that are destroying your life and my life, the things that destroy humanity, we're not confused, really, on whether they're honoring to God or not. The, the, the question becomes, um, am I going to surrender to God, or am I going to do my own thing? i going to suppress the truth. or or surrender to God. Paul lays out here that in what we're about to read that all humanity is sick. And our sickness runs deeper than we realize. And our our, our sickness affects all of us without partiality. And just like the sickness affects all of us without partiality, the cure is available to us without partiality. All right? And so our core problem in the next few verses we're going to see is that we have a broken core. Our core problem is that our core is broken. Let's read verses 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Paul is saying here that there's this internal witness in every human being that says there's a God and that points us to him. There's this internal witness that points us to him and we have to actively suppress that and we do. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. He says not only does God put an internal witness in us, but there's this external witness of all this beauty that he has made, this world that he's made perfectly for us. It bears witness to him. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to God, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so Paul's saying that, that even though um, like we, we knew God, this is the story of humanity. We didn't honor God, but we chose to worship self and created things rather than worshiping God. So um, I don't know if you've seen the show uh, Chernobyl. Anybody watch Chernobyl? Uh, it's miniseries. It's super disturbing. I know that's a great recommendation for it. But it's, uh, Son and I started watching, it's a miniseries. And it's about this terrible nuclear disaster in the Soviet Union in 1986. And it's an amazing picture of our human ability to suppress the truth. It's an amazing picture of our ability to deny what is right in front of our face. Um, it's amazing how, how powerful pride and idolatry can blind us and how we can deceive ourselves. So even though this is clearly a disaster, the core of this reactor has blown. The people in charge refuse to acknowledge the severity of the problem. It wasn't a big deal. We have this under control. We just need to put some water in there. And because they, they insisted that it was just a, a small issue, all the fixes that they tried actually only made matters worse. And you had people puking blood and dying left and right from radiation poisoning and exposure. And, the, and those in charge are still saying, you know, this isn't really that big of a deal. We've got this. We've got this under control. Because they refuse to see the severity of the problem, they took, took actions that only made matters worse. And if I think that my core problem is just that I need a couple of personality tweaks, I'm going to miss out on the reality of what I truly need. The reality is my heart is wicked, and I need a heart transplant. My core is broken, and I can only get a new one in Christ. In the show, Legisov, the the protagonist, he's a scientist, and he's... Speaking at the beginning, there's this voiceover. He says, "What?" He asks this question. He says, "What is the cost of lies?" It's not that we'll mistake them for the truth. The real danger is we hear enough lies, we no longer recognize the truth at all. What can we do then? The problem with lies, and guys, ever since we ever since the Garden of Eden, there's been a campaign, a spiritual campaign of lies against you and against me. And, and the thing is, it's not that we come to believe the lies; it's that we cease discerning the difference between lie and truth. So our fundamental sin, according to Paul here, is we've exchanged the glory of God, capital G, for the glory of things that are not God. And so nobody today probably is bowing down to statues, but idolatry is still our core heart problem. Our twisted hearts result in twisted worship. And our twisted worship results in twisted lives. Idolatry continues to be our core problem. Martin Luther said that every sin is in some way a breaking of the first commandment. So we have these behavior sins that are on the surface. Whatever your behavioral sin is, name any sin, underneath that, there's some kind of deeply held heart idolatry that feeds that surface level sin. And we can try to address the surface level sin all we want, but until the gospel of the cross and resurrection of Jesus permeates through that deepest part of us where the idolatry lies, nothing really changes. We're, we're, we're told in this passage that, that as humanity continued to worship everything but God, we're told three times in this passage eventually that God hands humanity over to their sin. As we insist on our own way, eventually God says, here, you can have your own way. And that's the first wave of judgment is God gives us what we want. And sin is its own judgment and its own reward. So maybe a statue isn't the idol we're worshiping, but so many of us are worshiping the idol of, of uh, comparison, comfort, happiness, approval. None of those things, control, none of those things are evil in and of themselves, but they become evil when they become the main thing. They become twisted when they become the main part of our life. It's like, imagine the sun. I think J.D. grew for this example. Imagine the sun kept telling, or, excuse me, the, the earth kept telling the sun, hey, I want to be the center of the universe. I want to be the center of the universe. And the Earth, uh, the sun says, no, you can't do it. You can't do it. And the, the earth keeps saying, hey, I want to be the center of the universe. And finally, the sun says, okay. Okay, earth, I'm going to let you be the center of the universe. Well, the thing is, it takes 1.3 million earths to fill up the sun. The sun Uh, is dense and has so much mass. The earth doesn't have the gravitational pull. It doesn't have the mass to hold the solar system together. So if the sun was to say to the earth, okay, go ahead, be the center of the solar system, our solar system would explode. And that's exactly what's happened to humanity, individually and collectively. God said, okay, you want to be the center of the universe, you want to be the object of worship, here you go. And as a result, our lives explode. And the only thing that brings our lives back together again is Jesus Christ. He's the only person with enough mass, he's the only person with the gravitational pull to hold your life and my life together. Success won't do it. Comfort won't do it. Approval won't do it. That's why we always want one more like, Right? Because it's not enough to hold our lives together. And so twisted worship leads to twisted thoughts and twisted lives. And Paul's going to lay out three areas where our lives are broken. He's going he's to lay out broken sexuality, broken society, and he's going to then give kind of a roundhouse kick in the face to broken spirituality. All right, So let's read verses uh, 26 through 32. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. We kept saying, give us our way, and, and God says, okay, have it your way. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with manner, all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so, Paul has said a lot here. And before we wade into this, I want you to know that... um, I've struggled and wrestled with this whole passage, not just my whole Christian life, but particularly this week, because I want to present God's word to you in a way that's gracious and loving and also truthful and faithful to what God's word says. Um, and so if there's anything you hear that seems maybe out of the character that you've known me to be, I just ask that you would uh, you, you can talk to me about it later. But I want to, want to speak to you in grace and truth here today. And the first thing that Paul addresses when he talks about broken sexualities, he addresses uh, He addresses homosexuality. The first thing I want to say here is that every person in this room is broken sexually. Every person in this room who has experienced the fall, which is all of us, we all in some form or fashion are sexually broken. And when Paul addresses homosexuality in this passage, he's not saying that homosexuality is worse than, than any other sin or every other sin. He's not saying it so we can have a bat that we can use to beat people with and be cruel with. And if... Christians have done that to you. I'm so sorry. But what he is doing is he's saying that this is an example of how our entire species has chosen to go our own way. It's an example uh, It's an example of how we've chosen to go against God's design that he's laid out in Genesis one and two, and it is self-evident in nature. And then we've said, no, we're not going to do things God's way, your way, we're going to do things our own way. And this is a a reflection of how we are all sexually broken. And so if you're living with your um, boyfriend or girlfriend or you're heterosexually promiscuous, this passage is also talking to you. It's talking to all of us who are sexually broken. But he specifically highlights uh, homosexuality because it does illustrate the lengths to which we've gone in rejecting God's design. If this example doesn't hit close to home for you, Don't worry, in the next couple verses, Paul's going to give give you a lot that will hit close to home for you. Um, There's a difference between someone who struggles with same-sex attraction and someone who's embraced a lifestyle of homosexuality. It's not a sin to experience temptation. Uh, We all experience sexual temptation. Jesus experienced every kind of temptation, and yet he did not sin. And so you're... Uh, your temptation or someone you love their temptation may be that they're attracted uh, same they experience same sex attraction Um, and if that's your struggle or your friend's struggle what you need to communicate is that God man God loves you I love you Um, I'm going to limp along beside you and I'm going to tell you the truth of what God's word says to the best of my ability because that's what love does okay um you can say, I'm sorry for the ways the church has mishandled this. Okay? Help me to know your story. Help me to understand where you're coming from. Eat dinner at my table. Sleep on my couch. These are all the things you can say. But what, what isn't helpful is when we, whether it's homosexuality or anything else, and we immediately condemn someone and say, ah, oh, you know, I'm not having anything to do with this person. Or if we say, hey, you just you do what makes you happy, you do you. If it makes you happy, do it. Listen, if I go to a doctor and my leg is broken and he is too nice to tell me my leg's broken, he does not love me. He's not a good doctor, okay? And so you're not a good friend if you don't tell the truth. Um, And where do we get truth? We get truth from God's Word. Even if we don't understand it, even if you don't agree with it, we get, as Christians, our truth from God's Word. So I'm going to limp along beside you. I'm going to love you. No matter what, and I'm going to tell you the truth. And we all differ in in our struggles. We all have different struggles. Even specifically, we all have different sexual struggles. Um, And we all need the transforming power of God's Spirit to deliver us. And so, same-sex attraction, that may be a struggle uh, you or your friend has from now on. What Paul's speaking to here. You know, that temptation isn't sin. What Paul's speaking to here is someone who's given themselves over to a lifestyle that says, I'm going to do my own thing no matter what God's word says. And that is sin. And Paul calls that sin. And that's not popular in our world today, but sin is sin. Okay, so we got to call sin what it is. All right. And so Genesis 1 tells us that our sexuality is fundamental. I right, male, female. Adam and Eve. And so... It makes sense that the evil one would want to hurt you and hurt me and hurt us in that very area that's so fundamental to us, our gender and our sexuality. It makes sense that we would experience confusion in, um, in this very fundamental part of our lives. And what I would ask each of us, whether heterosexual or, or if, if you experience uh, same-sex attraction, don't idolize your sexuality. Uh, the answer isn't go become heterosexual. The answer is love Jesus more than anything else. The answer is to love him, seek him first. And you may have this struggle, but will you act on it? Will you be defined by it or not? That's our choice. He next goes into broken society, verse 28. He he, he lists all these sins that are, are rooted in idolatry, that destroy community. He says, Uh, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip. So, uh, you know, these might be sins that you're tempted to say these aren't a big deal. But these are a huge deal to God. Arrogance, envy, gossip, this is a huge deal to God. These are things that destroy community and destroy society. Well, I don't know. Well, do you want to live in a neighborhood where everybody talks about each other and everybody steals from each other? Or do you want to live in a neighborhood where, where people treat each other like they want to be treated? We all know the answer, right? And so, uh, and so what, what, what we might say is, you know, I, I mean, yeah, I struggle with gossip, but I mean, God knows that I struggle with that. and He's, he's cool with that. Like he gets, I enjoy it, you know. Uh, or I enjoy envy. I mean, envy just kind of is the secret sauce of my relationships. And it, it makes me feel good when I want something. No, we know that that's not good. That's not okay. And, and so anytime we've made our bed with sin, and we've made peace with sin. We're not at peace with God. Jonathan Owen says, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. All this points forward to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Submit your body a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Take the, the, the mind that, that has been exchanged and put on this glorious mind. There's a, such a thing as a renewed mind and it's ours in Christ. As you redirect your worship to him, regardless of which of these struggles you have. The answer for all of us is to admit our body, a living sacrifice to God. So so finally, um, Paul turns to broken spirituality. He turns his attention to maybe the religious person sitting in the corner with his arms crossed who's been saying, all right, Paul, yes, it's about time you called all these people out. You know, the people shacking up with their spouses and then the same-sex relationships and the gossips. I'm glad you got all of them. Now you're really preaching, Paul. And now Paul goes for what in the south he used to say. He stops preaching and he goes to meddling. That's what he does here in chapter 2 because he turns his attention and he saves his harshest critique for the person whose religion has changed their behavior but has not changed their heart. And he turns to those of us who maybe struggle with moralism whether pagan or Jew or Christian, he, he starts pointing to the guy who's self-righteous. How do I know if I'm self-righteous? Maybe if I, can, if I brag about how I'm not self-righteous, that might be a sign that I'm self-righteous. Um, how do I know if I'm self-righteous? If you find out that somebody else's kid did something terrible and you're, you're, you're uh, smug about it, that like, yeah, my kid would never do that. Watch out. If some uh, pastor If some pastor falls and stumbles in sin, you say, oh, I knew that guy wasn't the real deal. Hold on. That's self-righteousness. That will destroy you. That will kill you. If you look at the list in chapter 1 and say, man, I'm not any of that. That's self-righteousness, right? And Paul shifts gears to focus on the hypocrite now. He he, he addresses the heathen in chapter 1, the hypocrite in chapter 2. He addresses the prodigal son in chapter 1 and the older brother in chapter 2 and he says verse 1 therefore you have no excuse O man every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on one another you condemn yourself because you the judge practice the very same things we know that the judgment of god rightly falls on those who practice such things do you suppose O man you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of god or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that god's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance that's our Scripture, memory verse this week, by the way. But because of your hardened, and heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's this broken spirituality that says, I've got it together. I've got, it. I, I've got what it takes. My sin doesn't stink like everybody else, else's does. And whether we're a heathen or a hypocrite, Paul's invitation to us is to repent and believe. Repent, turn from our sin of hypocrisy, turn from our sin of whatever else and believe in Jesus Christ. He says the kindness of God leads you to repentance. And God's God's kindness is for the hypocrite. God's kindness is for the heathen. The gospel is for the hypocrite. The gospel is for the heathen. And the gospel invites us to turn and repent and surrender our hypocrisy or to surrender our heathenism to Christ. You know, it's such a temptation to, to go from being the prodigal son to all of a sudden being the older brother that thinks we have it all together. And when we're tempted to be smug and self-righteous, Paul invites us to remember how kind God has been to us. He says, do you, do you have contempt for, do you look down your nose at the kindness of God? Do you treat God's kindness with the same kind of judgmentalism you don't want anybody else to treat you with? Remember His kindness and let it draw you in to Him. Again, he's not saying that we're not supposed to make judgment calls. Paul's made a lot of judgment calls in these first two chapters. He's not saying that we're not supposed to, if we see somebody in error, we're not supposed to speak to them and speak the truth in love. What Paul is condemning here isn't uh, making good judgments and helping one another. What Paul is telling us not to do is don't be a phony. He's saying don't set up one standard for everybody else and a different standard for yourself. For by the measure you judge, you will be judged. So by all means, speak the truth in love to people you're in a relationship with and you've built community with. When you see me or or, or one of your brothers and sisters in error or even somebody you're working with to try to lead them to Christ, speak the truth, tell the truth. But don't set up a a, a scale where it's rigged in your favor and you're you're judging everybody else differently than you're judging yourself. Don't be a phony, don't be a fake. And then Paul goes into this idea of the final judgment and we're wrapping up. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. There's going to be a day when we're all going to stand before God. And Paul says this really interesting thing that God's going to render to each of us according to our works. And, and, and does that kind of surprise anybody that we read that? Like at first, wait a minute, we're saved by grace, right? Has Paul been, you know, drinking when he wrote this? What's, what's, has he forgotten what's going on? He doesn't say we're saved by our works. We're saved by God's grace through faith. But what he says is that our works are going to be judged. Our works are going to be evaluated. What we did with the cards we were dealt is going to be evaluated. So when I I was looking back through my desk, cleaning my desk out last week, and I found a couple letters that I had written a few years ago. I used to travel to some really dangerous places, and one trip in particular was really, really dangerous. And I was going into an active war zone. I was going illegally, and there was a really good chance that something bad was going to happen. Sonda didn't think I was coming back alive. I was be go- going to be gone for a long time, and I really didn't know that I was going to be. Co- I, I, I didn't know that I was going to be coming back. Um, and so I wrote. Ava and Addie were my only two children at the time, and I found letters that I, I wrote a letter to Ava and I wrote a letter to Addie. And in the letter. I wrote to them what really mattered. I wrote to them how much I loved them and things that I wanted them to hear because there was this chance that I wasn't coming back. And that impending death gave me a sense of clarity and urgency. And if we're clear that there is such a thing as hell, there is such a day as a final judgment, everyone's going to spend eternity somewhere. That gives us clarity, that gives us urgency. And it gives us empathy for those that may not know Christ or may not be walking with him. Understanding of Judgment Day leads to empathy and urgency. And the problem is the church has so misused this idea that it hasn't led us to urgency. It hasn't led us to empathy. It's been portrayed in the very opposite way. But God's judgment isn't just a bad word. It's good news. And it gives us urgency and perspective and empathy. So I want to ask you, like I asked you last week, who's your one? Who's that one person you're praying for and you're building a relationship with and you're sharing the gospel with? What does it mean to be judged according to works? It means that even though we're saved by grace, if we're really saved, that's going to result in something. There's going to be a day we stand before God and, and He's going to look past the label on the container and He's going to look at the heart and He's going to see if what we said we were out here lines up with what we really are inside. We say what we think, but we do what we believe. And if you believe that Jesus is Lord, that's going to affect the way you live your life. It's going to affect the things that you do and how you spend your time. All right. Um, that was Jesus calling. We're, we're, almost, we're almost there. We're almost there. We do what we believe. I want to close with one final story. When we were in, uh, on vacation in California a couple of weeks ago, we went to, the, to Santa Cruz Beach one day, and it was a beautiful time at the beach. And there's this amusement park right on the beach. Maybe you saw it in one of the Dirty Harry movies and a bunch of other movies. It's really good, but really cool place. And it's like open, though, from the street over here and open to the beach over here. And we, we uh, were on the beach all day. Then we went to this amusement park, and it's in the evening time. There's tons of people there because it was the, the night of the week that it was the rides were extra cheap. And so... it's getting about dark time, and there's people everywhere, it's open everywhere. And um, our three daughters were on a ride, and and me and Ava had one job, right? That was to watch Ethan, right? That's all that we had to do. And we look around, and Ethan's gone. It's apparently a thing that he's going to go missing every vacation we take. But he was gone, and, and it started like we couldn't see him anywhere. And there's people everywhere, there's open, this isn't a contained environment. And like minutes pass, and we can't find him. And at first I was like, oh, he's around here. And then he wasn't. He was nowhere and we couldn't find him. And Sonda was running around calling for him. I was running around calling for him. And he was nowhere to be found. And he couldn't hear us. I mean, and there's people everywhere. And, and I began to panic and I mean as the minutes go by I'm panicking and my, my, my heart was going so fast that I'm crying. Ethan, 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 where are you? And I couldn't find him. And I, and, and, and I told the security guards and they're like, what, what color is his shirt? I said, I don't know. I think it was blue. And I think he's about this tall. And you know, and, and then I ran away and I'm looking for him. Ethan, Ethan, Ethan. And I was panicked and I was terrified and I was urging And then I start thinking, what if somebody took him? What if somebody took my boy? What if somebody's hurting him? Right now, And I began to experience wrath. And I started to tap into uh, Liam Neeson. You know, I will find you and I will kill you. I have a very particular set of skills. I was ready to inflict wrath on anyone they would hurt my son. And, and finally, there he is. I mean, I thought, I, I thought he was gone. It seemed like an eternity. And there he is. And, and he comes walking up. And, and, and the security guards brought him. And I fell to my knees and I hugged him. I said, son, I thought something terrible had happened to you. And he said, I thought something happened to you. And, and, and my wrath wasn't directed to him. Listen, my wrath was directed at anyone that would hurt him. Anything that would hurt him. We have been taken captive by sin, and like Stockholm syndrome, where we fall in love with our captor, we have fallen in love with our sin. We have fallen in love with the very sin that entangles us and wants to destroy us. So much so that if anybody who loves us tries to tell us the truth and tries to call us out of our sin, we we make them the enemy. And that's regardless of what our sin is. But your Father, that's why we sing songs about the fatherhood of God today. Because we can't separate God the judge from God the Father. He will stop at nothing to set you free. He will stop at nothing to make you whole. He will stop at nothing uh, to, to rescue you, even if it means rescuing you from something you think you love. He won't stop. And the urgency that I felt when I was looking for my son the, 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 the passion and the wrath was just a small taste of what your Father feels for you. And He will stop at nothing. But there'll come a day if you continue to reject Him, you continue to suppress the truth, He will have done all that He can do. And your decision will be final and eternal. So we need to consider today. Am I living today in light of Judgment Day? I'm a living knowing that everybody's going to spend eternity somewhere. Do I have the the kind of passion that I I want to tell every lost child that there's a God who loves them? Do I know Him? Or did did something happen inside of me? Or did I just kind of decide one day, yeah, being a Christian sounds okay? or, Or do I really know Him?